0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 25th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, COVID-19 vaccines were in use for quite a while before we detected one of the serious adverse events associated with some of them, the syndrome of venous thromboembolism with thrombocytopenia that's been seen in some recipients of at least two of the adenovirus-based vaccines. It's clearly been difficult to detect some of the problems that can arise even after hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine have been delivered. Why is it so difficult to assess safety?
1: That's a good question, Steve. It's fairly easy to detect common side effects that occur shortly after vaccine administration. We know a good deal about the incidence of local pain and swelling and the constitutional symptoms that occur sometimes within the first few days after vaccination. We're even able to find less common problems, such as persistent lymphadenopathy and uncommon skin reactions, whose manifestations are somewhat delayed. Where it gets more difficult is when reactions are either rare or when the temporal relationship with vaccination isn't so clear. We've always had trouble with problems that occur at frequencies that would only rarely be seen in the original randomized controlled trials. Remember, those are performed to measure efficacy and early safety of vaccines, And since they include about ten to 20,000 people each, we have a threshold of somewhere on the order of 1 in 10,000, where we can't use RCT data to reliably find problems.
2: Eric, as you point out, the RCTs are incredibly important in demonstrating efficacy and common safety events. They're less able to determine uncommon events. What I mean by that is you typically need about a three to one ratio to identify a hint of a safety signal so that if you enroll, let's say 300 people, you have about a one in a hundred chance of detecting an initial signal of an event. So 30,000 participants in a study may allow you to see or have the beginning of a hint of an issue at about a one in 10,000 level. So for events that are one in a million, one in a hundred million, obviously this cannot be done in an RCT format and require vigorous surveillance systems when larger scale use is deployed, as we've
0: seen with the deployment of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. So given all those issues, how can we detect rare problems associated with vaccines?
1: Our first approach is to use passive surveillance systems to get some idea of what might occur after vaccination. In the US, one of the most widely cited systems is VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. This system allows vaccinated individuals or their healthcare providers to enter any unexpected issues that arise after vaccination into a database. Researchers can query the database to look for events that occur more frequently than expected. As you can imagine though, this approach has significant flaws. First, the quality of the data entered varies significantly. Many events are likely never reported, while those that are reported may have incomplete information or simply might be diagnosed incorrectly. Using this database for research requires very labor-intensive curation to try to distinguish what's real from what's not. More importantly, the database contains no controls. Thus, investigators have to determine if the rate of any observed reaction is higher than would be expected in the absence of vaccination. This is largely done by calculating the rate of any given syndrome in the general public and comparing it to the rate seen in the database. Unfortunately, in general, both of those numbers are difficult to determine. The database is always incomplete, so there are always an unknown number of missing cases. In addition, for most syndromes, we simply don't have very good numbers for the rates of occurrence over any specific time period. So, there's a lot of guesswork involved, and we end up with very imprecise estimates of risk, often too crude to tell if there's any real association.
2: Eric, what's implicit in these types of strategies are that those who choose to be vaccinated now versus later versus not to be vaccinated may not be the same types of individuals, even if they are the same age, sex, gender, race ethnicity, zip code, SES grouping. Therefore, it becomes very challenging to understand how best to compare vaccine recipients from those who have not received vaccination. And when individuals choose to be vaccinated, this may not be a chance event. There may be a different viral strain circulating, a different level of severity of illness and other factors that may introduce time, space, viral variables that make it complicated to understand if the individuals who are vaccinated at time A versus at time B are truly comparable. Having said this, these types of data are incredibly important to try and find important safety events and then to further understand if there are other factors that may be contributing to these events.
1: I think that's well put, Lindsay, very odd things are sometimes easy to see in data like this, very unusual side effects. And we saw that, for example, in the use of the vaccines for rotavirus, rotavirus vaccines, some of them were associated with an unusual complication, intussusception. And that can be seen in a passive surveillance system because it's such an unusual manifestation. It's more difficult, of course, with things that are somewhat more common, and it's very difficult to determine the rates of anything very precisely from data like this.
2: I mean, I think, Eric, you're highlighting, as we see with the cavernous venous thrombosis, rare events of great clinical import that are highly unusual in the background can be seen and have been seen. And this has been very important in improving vaccine safety. More common events that routinely occur are much more difficult to discern given the relatively higher background rate and perhaps a more nuanced clinical presentation that is not distinct.
0: Looking beyond passive surveillance systems, today we published a study that used a different information source to try to look at vaccine safety.
1: How did this study work? This trial used electronic health records from a large HMO in Israel to emulate a prospective trial. They included people who were eligible for vaccination, meaning they were at least 16 years old, and with no recent health events and no previous vaccination. On each day running from late December, when vaccination with BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine, was started, and running until late May, the researchers matched an individual who was receiving the vaccine with someone who did not receive vaccine and had not been previously vaccinated. This allowed investigators to reuse study subjects. Those who served as controls one day could enter the vaccinated group on a future date when they received the vaccine. Each individual was matched using a number of baseline variables to try to obtain groups of very similar individuals. The investigators looked at a wide range of possible outcomes, including many syndromes that had been suggested by previous studies using various surveillance systems. They excluded common post-vaccination events, such as fever. They followed patients for 21 days after each dose of vaccine, a total of 42 days. Because of the time period, they didn't include syndromes that might present later, such as chronic autoimmune syndromes. They used diagnostic codes and any accompanying short text descriptions to measure outcomes. In addition, the investigators used a similar design to examine the same outcomes in individuals who developed COVID-19. This ultimately allowed them to compare the risk of infection with the risk of vaccination.
2: Eric, I think that these types of analyses are very important to try to illuminate potential side effects. A real challenge are the number of things that one looks at, because it could be any potential side effect. And that becomes a real issue in considering what may or may not be associated, given the large number of variables looked at. In addition, it's not random. So the background illness in the community being vaccinated earlier versus later, or the individuals choosing to be vaccinated earlier versus later, needs to be carefully weighed, especially if higher risk communities are approached first because they're at higher risk for SARS-CoV-2 complications. And these are factors that investigators, public health authorities are carefully trying to balance and control for, especially
1: in this setting. It is very difficult, of course. In a trial design like this, number one, you can only look at presumed complications. So you're not looking for new things here. The way the investigator set up the trial, they were testing to see if any of a list of potential side effects was associated. That makes sense because the group is not enormous and so it's hard to find very rare things and it doesn't fit their study design. But in addition, It's crucially dependent on how good the matching is. I have to say, they did use a very large number of factors and made pretty precise matching, something that can be done when you have a very large database like this. This is NHMO that includes more than half of the people in Israel. Nevertheless, this is also not a perfect study design.
0: So given all those caveats, what did we learn from this study?
1: So as I said, this is a large group. The researchers used a total of more than 1.7 million people. Though for each particular adverse event, the numbers were somewhat smaller because they excluded those who previously had the same diagnosis. To summarize the results, the researchers found a somewhat increased risk of a handful of syndromes, myocarditis, lymphadenopathy, appendicitis, and herpes zoster infection. But that has to be balanced against the protective effect seen against a number of other syndromes. So we have to put this in context. To create that context, the researchers looked at patients who developed COVID-19 and their risk of developing the same outcomes. Among these individuals, there was a marked increase in myocarditis along with many other syndromes. In the end, the risk of developing almost all of the outcomes was far higher in those with infection than in those who received the vaccine. So it's an interesting study design. It's somewhat limited, of course, For example, this HMO data can only be used to assess the Pfizer vaccine, as it's the only vaccine administered in Israel. And the researchers made several choices that limit their conclusions. For example, by excluding people with a prior episode of a particular syndrome, they were unable to detect if vaccination exacerbated previous illness. For at least one of the potential adverse events they examined, myocarditis, it's thought that the risk might increase with decreasing age and male sex, two variables that the investigators didn't examine. Nevertheless, I find these data to be very helpful in assessing vaccine risks.
2: Eric, as you point out, the matching is incredibly important and these investigators went to great lengths to optimize the matching. However, it still has substantial limitations despite these tremendous efforts. It is also very interesting to see the comparisons that the investigators present. Those who are vaccinated versus those not vaccinated in the occurrence of events, and those who are vaccinated versus those who developed COVID infection and disease in the occurrence of events. All valid comparisons of great interest, but very different information. And something that we need to pay attention to as we think about the benefits and risks of receiving the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. And I applaud these researchers for doing these different types of important analyses. But it does make it very challenging for the community to understand where these data fit in. Overall, the conclusion is vaccination provides substantial overall benefit. However, there are side effects that we need to pay attention to.
1: Windy, I'd like to focus a little on one of the side effects that we already mentioned, myocarditis. One of the problems with this particular issue is that it happens in young people and the overwhelming majority of people who've been vaccinated are older. If it's true that myocarditis is occurring at reasonable frequencies in younger people, we may not be able to detect that until we have a little more information. For one thing, studies that focus on younger age groups, and for another, the ongoing RCTs occurring in children. I think it remains a problem. And it's hard to eliminate the concern of that issue without having a little more data.
2: A challenge is always going to be a rare event requires a large number of individual studies to detect it. And so I think the ongoing studies in children are very important to establish the efficacy and to understand the safety in general and for common side effects but it will always be difficult in the RCT format to detect a one in a hundred thousand or one in a million event. And this has to be viewed in light of the severity of the illness that's being prevented. So even though safety will continually be pursued and it's pursued, as we've discussed before, for medicines we commonly use like penicillin, and very common medications, we're continuing to assess safety in larger numbers of individuals and those with specific conditions. Same thing will be true for vaccination. We need to understand the overall safety and the overall benefit, and then have vigorous systems in place to detect uncommon events and put that in context with the overall risk benefit to the individual and the community.
1: One of the frustrating things I think for some clinicians is their inability to communicate some of this to patients. There have been hundreds of millions of people who've received vaccines, and yet we don't know what happens to someone with a particular constellation of comorbidities. Uh, We can't quote a specific risk for them. But I think the important message is the one that you just sent, which is for the vast majority of people right now. As far as we know, for all people who are eligible for vaccine, the risks of disease still vastly outweigh the risks of these adverse events.
2: To emphasize that point, all we need to do is look at what's happening in some of our states, in the southeastern U.S., as well as in other countries around the world, to understand the severity of this illness, especially the Delta variant and potentially other variants that may increase virulence and morbidity. But I do want to highlight, Eric, that what we have learned over the last year, and particularly over the last three to four months, are the surveillance systems that are in place and the ability to identify important side effects and to rigorously understand if they may be related to vaccination and then how to potentially mitigate them. The regulatory agencies like the FDA, the public health agencies like the CDC, the VAERS system, and other passive surveillance systems have been able to identify very important side effects and how to mitigate them and to put them in perspective as to how common they are. On top of this, our academic community, such as our colleagues from Israel in this issue of the journal, are further able to refine an understanding of what the side effects might be at a very rare level and what the associated morbidity may be. I find these types of data very reassuring, not because side effects have occurred, but because the systems are in place that can detect them and detect them at a relatively few number of cases. The biology can be elucidated, and mitigation strategies can be deployed, such as the proper anticoagulation in the setting of CVST. These types of processes are incredibly reassuring from my perspective, because it means that our surveillance systems are working and important side effects are being identified at a very few number of cases. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.